How to build a free society. Welcome to today's live broadcast with me, Dan Aston Gregory, here on the Elevate podcast. A question that we're continually exploring within the Elevate community is, what can we do to fight back against the government? What can we do in the current environment to help build a more sane and free world? We all understand some of the problems that are emerging, but what is the solution and how do we restore freedom as a core value within Western culture? How do we live more freely within our society? In this episode, I'm going to explore a number of different strategies that could help to build a free society. And this episode is a precursor. It's a it's part of a series of work that we'll be doing on this topic uh, starting tonight on this episode. And then tomorrow evening, Wednesday, the 8th of February, we have a community discussion inside the Elevate community where we'll be breaking down some of the strategies that I share with you tonight and actually exploring how we might put some of these things into practice. Because I'm going to share from all the research and discussions that I've had over recent weeks, months and years, uh, what are some of those key strategic options that are available to us? In fact, I'll share four or five key strategies tonight and we'll break those down even further in our session tomorrow. So if you'd like to join us in, inside that uh, live discussion where you can be part of the conversation, you can go over to weareelevate.org forward slash free societies. That's That link will be available in the comments and in the description of this episode once we're done. Uh, so what are some of the strategies that we can undertake? Number one is the political option to challenge the current system, but ultimately continue to work within it. The, glove, the, the, the government <laughs> the government, and the political process that surrounds it, whether we deem that to be democratic or not, are somewhat inevitable within the developed world. There are many people in the world who would like to live in a world that is free from government, uh, and there are others that would like to see more government. <laughs> Uh, I personally would like to see a very limited government with a very clear set of functions, administrative functions, to ensure the proper functioning of, uh, of, our, of our political realm. But whether we want to involve ourselves with politics or not, the hard reality is that politics involves itself with us. Therefore, if we want a free society, we must not stand idly on the sidelines whilst politicians and political bodies and central entities continue to claw at our freedoms. Because the hard reality is we saw this unprecedented um, collapse of our freedoms, if you will, over the COVID chapter. But that erosion of our freedoms and liberties has continued and threatens our very way of life in Western society. So instead, rather than sitting on the sidelines, we must organize and become politically active, working with campaign organizations, working in coalitions, working within the uh, kind of remit of activism to effectively fight politically for our freedoms, as we have done so tireless, tirelessly and relentlessly for the past three years with a real intensity during the period of lockdowns and uh, medical mandates and such that we've uh, sadly been through over this period of time. However, the amount of time, energy, and human capital that has to be invested trying to win political and legis uh, legislative battles 
is staggering. The amount of work that went in to try and tackle lockdowns and the mandates and the social distancing and the masks, all of these things took an enormous amount of effort. But what do we really have to show for it? Yes, in the UK, you know, we, we were one of the freest nations in the world following the kind of COVID chapter. We, we relinquished our freedoms very early on. And many of my associates and connections around the world have attributed that to what they did witness in the UK. You know, the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people marching in the streets, the campaigns, the relentless activism, you know, perhaps that did make a difference. I believe that it did. And when you look at things like the NHS mandates, yes, we were unable to stop them within the care sector, but within the NHS, we had a victory, a major victory. We contributed to that inevitably. So activism, the political game, has a role to play. But ultimately, political action can be viewed as a form of self-defense, where we're seeking to protect our freedoms when they come under attack. And that comes with an intensity when there's a surge of, intent, uh, of urgency, when there's a sudden surge of urgency like we experienced during the lockdowns and the mandates. It's all hands to the pump. Is the relentless campaign-to-campaign -campaign activity you know, is the intensity. That's why we saw so many people joining the marches. It's that level of immediacy that comes with that, where political action really comes to the forefront. However, when it's applied consistently and incrementally over time, it can have profound, uh, profound results. But you've got to have a hell of a lot of patience, which can, be, which can feel really challenging when you feel like your back is against the wall, when there's a relentless kind of attack on our freedoms as we're witnessing right now. We've got the uh, prospect of central bank digital currencies. We've got the erosion of our privacy. We've got the erosion of the, the, the ability to protest. <laughs> Speaking of protests and activism, we've got uh, central bank di digital currencies. We've got a whole range of, uh, we've got the international health regulations. We've got all these different things coming down the track that's going to require that kind of political action. And you could say, actually, if you take a deeper view, you take a broader view of what's happened over the last few decades, you could state that that consistent incremental political action over time has in many ways resulted in what we're experiencing today. And actually, many of the things we're standing against as being part of a political process, just, you know, in a more progressive sense, moving towards this uh, perhaps more woke uh, way of living that's, you know, certainly politically raised, risen to the surface. But this isn't a, an overnight story. This is a uh, a slow boiling frog that's come to come to the boil. And I'll, I'll talk more about that in another context in a minute. So political action, it's that form of self-defense, it's activism, it's necessary. Um, and, and when done constructively over time, it can make material difference, but it's a lot of work and it requires a lot of effort and a lot of resources. Uh, that doesn't mean it shouldn't be done, but we also have to think about what other options. So number one is political action. Number two, controversial, maybe, I don't know. Number two is tactical withdrawal. This approach involves separating, withdrawing, or segregating in some way from larger society in the political landscape. This doesn't necessarily mean we take the agorist kind of view where we live off the land and we separate and segregate ourselves from our families. You might want to do that after what we've been through the last couple of years. But it's really predicated on the idea that the current environment is largely hopeless politically and therefore attempting to play the game within the system where the rules are so heavily slanted in favor of those in power could be seen as foolish. It could undermine strategy number one of the political action. But again, I think it's a, a valid attempt. So tactical withdrawal can take many forms. 
it, uh, from, from a range of alternatives, from the absolutist uh, method of complete separation, the more agorist type of approach, to more subtle lifestyle changes. And I'll share some examples. In some cases, this form of tactical withdrawal can mean physically uprooting where one lives and works. We've seen it in the United States at scale with people leaving San Francisco in droves, for instance, and the wider West Coast in favor of states like Texas and Florida, where greater freedoms have been found. You know, this has been a landslide. You've, been, you've seen, you know, the, the, the Silicon Valley, you know, the, the, the land of liberty of San Francisco, the once liberal capital of the United States, uh, has now become this beacon of authoritarianism, you know, and, and tyranny. So rather than staying to fight through political activism, although that has happened and continues to happen within these states, many have just said, you know what, we're going to make a choice. We're opting out. We're heading where land is for, where, to lands further afield where freedoms can be found. Now, to some degree, the same is happening in the UK. I mentioned in my newsletter recently that my wife and I and my family have moved from Bristol to Bournemouth. Now, the primary reason we've relocated is for lifestyle choices. We want to be closer to the coast. We want to be um, close to nature. But ultimately, we do want to get out of the city. You know, Bournemouth's a big town, but we wanted to get out of the city for the direction and the trajectory that we believe that cities are going to be on. You know, we're already seeing the fight now against 15-minute cities, these low-traffic neighborhoods, and all these different concepts that have appeared seemingly out of nowhere. But ultimately, this is part of an overall trajectory and strategy for smart cities as part of this kind of Agenda 30 methodology. And it's only going to increase in, in speed. So, yes, we can stay and fight, and I think it's important that we do do that. But at the same time, there are opportunities to move away and to actually build a groundswell where there is already a base of freedom seekers that are actually growing in numbers. It's not for everyone, but it's a, it's a way to tactically withdraw. Now, more and more people are choosing to live off the grid, both literally and digitally. We're seeing this as a tactical withdrawal. It's a different way to remove yourself from the system to some degree. Homeschooling has been hugely on the rise over the last couple of years. It's another great example of tactical withdrawal. It enables children and parents to escape the state education complex. But it's not the only option. You know, when I when I, I've got many people in my network, including people in my team who homeschool and they, they share some amazing stories of, of the impact that it's had on their lives and their children's lives. But it's not the only option. There are ways you know, on the edges of the system. For example, Montessori is a different form of education. We put our son, Zach, into the Montessori nursery here. They have a whole different philosophy philosophy when it comes to education and, you know, helping to enable human flourishing within at an individual level. They have freedom at the core of their experience and enabling freedom within oneself, the freedom to develop. So you don't have to, you know, for a lot of people who, you know, are in families where both parents or, you know, if you're in a single parent uh, family, are working and there's just the idea of homeschooling is is just just not on the table. The reality is there are there are emerging alternatives, but again we have to stand at our guard because in some places around the world we've seen this clampdown on home home education and this is another threat that we have to be mindful of. But there are a growing number of alternatives. There's a lot of innovation in this space. Innovation is something I'll talk about more in a moment. There is a rise in people exploring communal living and self-sufficiency or simply choosing to move out the cities, as I've explained, to more rural and remote areas for concerns about what cities will become for what I've what I've just stated about. 
And please, by the way, on the 18th of February, if you're in the UK, come and join us in Oxford for the next major protest against the 15-minute city agenda. We'll be gathering. I'll be speaking in Oxford. Put it, mark your diaries today. Let's 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 get together. We have to we have to nip this one under the bud. Was it small? There's the old phrase of if you want to defeat the monster, kill it. Was it's a in its infancy? You know, we've got to, we've got to stop this thing before it grows into something big. So. Uh, there's been some amazing activity driven by Together in Bath, and now there's a whole new set of activity happening on the 18th of February. That's a little side note, asterisk there for you to check out. Uh, if you're already in the Elevate network, do come and let us know inside the community that you're coming. We've set up an event inside the uh, platform. Now, withdrawing from the matrix of the endless consumption and debt, this kind of culture that we've lived within, this fast-paced consumerist, you know, uh, high-anxiety culture that we live in, is, is something that we need to, to recognize as a symptom of the problem or even a root of the problem. You know, this, this idea of one being awake, I don't particularly like the term, but, you know, when people are plugged into the matrix of this endless consumption, you know, it's, 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 it's what creates this kind of mass formation that is inevitably kind of led people uh, walking eyes shut into the erosion of their freedom. So, unplugging from what I call the digital white noise that surrounds us to pursue something more enriching, something more wholesome, offers another simple form of tactical retreat, simply unsubscribing from major news outlets, checking out of digital, having digital detoxes, uh, kicking, kicking your social media into touch for a week, you know, tuning out for a while so you can tune into oneself and find something more wholesome. It's a simple and more subtle way that you can find inner freedom. And inner freedom is really, in my view, the first step towards outer freedom. Now, whilst these different options I've summarized very briefly could be seen as a form of retreat, at least for now, it creates the opportunity to build a life outside or on the periphery of the state's parameters to whatever extent that is possible. Now, there are different extremes that one can go to there. Uh, I'm not going to talk about those today because the idea is here we want we want to be able to create strategies that are accessible to everyone. You know, there are people who take this agorist type lifestyle really seriously and they try and escape the system fully, but they ultimately end up on the run. <laughs> you know, there are people I've met over the last couple of years who have detached themselves fully from the matrix, if you will, the system. But, you know, they, they, they have a very different style of life and that's not for everyone. So these strategies I'm outlining here, there's different levels that you can think about them. Uh, but from what I've shared there around these different types of tactical withdrawal, there are ways that we can find more freedom within the current system, or at least at the edges. Number three is about building a counterculture to win hearts and minds. This strategy is about education. It's about persuasion. It's about influence. It's about marketing at every level from education, academia, traditional media, social media, religion, spirituality, arts, music. It's based on the idea that no change can occur unless a significant portion of the population rejects the current culture and embraces something new polit politically, economically, socially. You know, it's often said that politics is downstream from culture. Therefore, we should focus on the underlying disease, not the symptoms. And to do that, we can do uh, we can approach take an approach of building a counterculture, which simply means to you know, go in a different direction to the current culture, which I'm sure many of us are feeling the, the, the kind of heat of this, this authoritarian creep that we're witnessing. And it's important to recognize that everything we're experiencing today is really the consequence of a, 
as I've mentioned earlier, a now boiling frog that has literally been simmering for decades. You know, this isn't a result of an overnight shift caused by a novel, a novel virus or a pandemic or a political system, but rather it's a culture that has emerged since the rise of postmodernism in the 1960s, which has since permeated our culture. It's created this post-truth reality that we find ourselves in. And it's eventually captured our institutions from academia to news media, to government, to the church, to Hollywood, to corporations and big tech. You know, the, the kind of WEF, the World Economic Forum narratives are just playing out throughout these major institutions. This overly centralized, postmodern uh, way of living has is, is become part of our culture, but it's been a very slow creep. We must therefore focus some of our efforts, at least on reclaiming these institutions for liberty and for a brighter future. It's evident, it's entirely evident, just within the, the bounds of the pandemic alone. We've witnessed how science has been captured, the academic institutions have been captured, news has been captured, government has been captured, companies have been captured, big tech's been captured. You know, this, is, this isn't a temporary uh, outcome. This is a, this is a, this has been a result of a slow creep over time, and we've just been blind to it. At least many of us have. Uh, others have been fighting this for a long time. So it makes sense to think about how we can have a steady stream of freedom-minded, pro-humanity individuals and groups going into academia, into business, into media, into institutions. This is how I believe we can strike at the roots or at least chip away at the current mindset that's become all pervasive within the current establishment. Now, the fact that it will take a long time to do this, and believe me, looking at the history of this and the kind of slow creep since the 60s, and if not earlier, you could argue going back to the age of enlightenment, really, if you really wanted to take a zoom out look on this. But you can see how culturally how we've gone from modernism to postmodernism into this new blurry post-truth reality, that this has been in the emergent shift over a period of time. So to counter that, to build a counterculture, to shift hearts and minds, to, 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 to kind of re-restore balance within our institutions is going to take a long time to reverse or shift this. And as a result of that, this might seem unappealing to some, unappe unappealing to some who want these kind of quick wins, which is why we're drawn always to the activism, because the activism gives you that buzz. It gives you that certainty that you're doing something right now to make a difference. And we all want that. We want to feel like we're making a difference right now. But in, in many ways, and I've shared this before at some of the different workshops that I've been part of and hosted, is that it's it's the top of the, you know, it's the top of the iceberg. It's the tip of the iceberg. The depth of the iceberg that you cannot see is below the ocean. And that's where we really need to influence to create, to create long-term change. But the activism just is always just working at the tip, and we need to get to the we need to get to the to the cause, not just the effect. So these long-term strategies cannot be ignored. We've got to think about how we can restore balance within our institutions. And more widely, culturally, the reality is until we win hearts and minds, it doesn't matter who we elect, what legal bill gets passed, or how we arrange our personal professional lives, whether we get off grid, get out of the system. The reality is the same authoritarian creep, this mentality, this, this woke culture, all of these different elements that have kind of permeated our society will continue to surface over and over and over again and work against us. So we've got to start to look at the roots of this and we've got to think about how we build that counterculture by winning hearts and minds.
And some will say that the digital revolution is part of the problem, but it's equally a great leveler. It gives us the opportunity to use it to its full advantage and changing as many hearts or at least influencing or connecting with as many hearts and minds as possible. Because I, I personally believe we've got to take a higher ground here. We can't start using behavioral science to nudge people the other way, you know, just to manipulate minds. That's not freedom. That's not consciousness. That's not an evolution of our, our, our human pathway. We want to, if we're going to nudge anyone anywhere, it's nudging them back to themselves so they can see the world through their own eyes and have an awakened mind, you know, rather than simply just, you know, playing <laughs> ping pong with people's minds and using these behavioral science. So, you know, to, to influence hearts and minds isn't really about persuasion or influence. It's, it, it's a, well, it is, but it's about influencing people to come back to themselves and come back to that inner freedom, that inner consciousness that's within all of us. And, you know, sure, there's going to be some quick wins available. You know, we're starting to see that as the tide turns. But really, we've seen just how hard it is to win hearts and minds within the COVID narrative. So we have to be prepared to take the long term view and somehow trust and have faith that common sense and sanity will eventually prevail. And finally, on this point, let us remember that every advanced civilization and society, every liberal society, throughout history was built by people with a longer time horizon, horizons beyond their own lives in many ways, looking to the future beyond their own lifetime. So we've got to take a long-term view. It doesn't mean we don't take approaches right now. You know, when the, when the heat is on, you've got to put out the fire, of course. But, you know, you can spend your lifetime putting out fires and never moving forward. And, you know, again, many of the activists that I've worked alongside over the last couple of years have shared that sentiment. You know, we're constantly battling. We're never attacking the route. We're never changing the roots because we're always fighting the fires. And if you look at what's happened over the last 50 years, you know, there's been a group of organizations that have very quietly underground beneath the surface been moving things forward. They've not been distracted by every little battle that emerges. They've just been taking that long-term strategic view and moving things forward. And that's why we're facing what we're facing today. So we also have to balance that instant action, that instant gratification that comes from that instant action with that longer term strategic view. Now with that in mind, let's go to point four. Number four is building a parallel polis. You may have heard this term. I've spoken about it briefly on the podcast a number of occasions. And the old quote from Buckminster Fuller comes to hand here when he, when he said that you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. Now, building on the past three options that I've shared, building a parallel policy is really about building parallel structures to accelerate the counterculture that I've spoken about, the institutional shift, by creating new structures and organizations outside the bounds or at the edges of current society. And if you think about martial arts, for those of you who have experienced martial arts, rather than fighting something head on, uh, like with political activism, this parallel structure strategy attempts to deflect and redirect the greater force by building something different. And there's the old phrase, the old adage that, you know, don't strive to be better, strive to be different because different is better. <laughs> uh, and this is our opportunity to think differently and build something that's different. Now, again, when we talk about parallel structures, parallel systems, parallel polis, people often get into this more esoteric left field kind of extraction, you know, move ourselves beyond outside society. And that is intimidating. 
The reality is we don't need to do that. You can do that if you want to. And again, I understand fully why you want to escape what's happening right now. But let me give an example of where you can start to transform things within society. And I've already alluded to the education system, for instance, the choices we've made, putting Zachary into Montessori-based education. It's a very different philosophy. You know, he's only at nursery level right now. And when we, when he goes into primary and secondary education, we'll have to reevaluate. Um, but it, as, as, as myself, you know, as, as, a, as an entrepreneurial mind, I, I would love to be able to generate the capital over the next few years to invest in the future when it comes to education. I'd love to look at how we can start to build new education systems. And this is exactly the type of thinking, and I'm not alone. And I know darn well I'm not alone in thinking that the education system needs to change. Uh, we've got some amazing people in our network who are actively working on this, uh, in fact. Uh, so, uh, you know, heads up to that. Um, but the education system itself perhaps offers one of the greatest opportunities for this type of parallel policy, this parallel structure. Because as public schools, universities deteriorate into these mindless overly PC, politically correct zones, as universities continue to produce indebted grad graduates with uncertain job prospects, it becomes increasingly obvious that the whole model, the education model, is not sustainable. It's not actually contributing to a flourishing society. And there are certain building blocks of a flourishing society, and education is one of them. So this represents a fantastic opportunity to reimagine the, the model altogether. You know, again, people are concerned about technology uh, and children and what impact it will have, but it can, it, can be a, it can be a tool for prosperity or it could be a tool for harm. Uh, you know, how, how, you, how, it's how you build things in. It's how you redevelop the education system, the values that it's built upon, the fundamental ethos that really determines uh, how, how things can evolve. But I fundamentally believe that within the context, within the shell of the old systems and societies that have begun to collapse and fall around us under this uh, kind of emergence of this authoritarian, uh, very, you, you know, you know anti-human in many ways uh, philosophy, uh, it produces the seed of an opportunity, the seed of a, an equal or greater opportunity to do things differently. So I've mentioned education, but the same can be said for healthcare. You know, we've got record hospital waiting lists. People, you know, I tried to get a GP appointment. It was 45 days. It said call up every morning to get a cancellation. Are you serious? Are you serious? That's how you get a healthcare appointment right now? Uh, so, you know, it's that breaking point. But there's a lot of smart people that are well qualified in the world of health that can really make a difference. But it's not just those who are qualified in health. You know, it's, it's a creativity within each of us that can, can actually take our own experience of the healthcare system and say, you know what, there are different, I'm sure there's a different way we could do this. There's a better way. And, you know, entrepreneurs like Richard Branson, you know, that's how he's built his entire Virgin Empire by just <laughs> taking on his own frustrations, whether it's record companies, media, or, or train lines, or Air, airlines and just going surely there's a better way of doing this now i'm not advocating for virgin or any or branson or anything like that but i'm just pointing out this entrepreneurial spirit that enables each one of us to say you know what i think there's some ways we could do this differently so you don't have to be a doctor you don't have to be working in the nhs you know if you if you happen to be a doctor working in the nhs and you say i've got some ideas then let's hear about it because you know we're here to support 
Um, so, yes, the education system, the healthcare system, media, there's a whole alternative media ecosystem emerging right now. So these parallel structures, they're happening within the system, within the structure, but they're working alongside uh, the kind of systems of the old. Uh, and they can have a direct influence on the future and a direct influence on our lives today uh, and, and help build this more liberal, liber, liber, libertarian in many ways, more free society moving forward. So I've talked about technology. I've talked about innovation, which is number five. So let's recap. We've looked at number one, which is the political activism. It's the it's the political option, the political approach. Number two is tactical withdrawal. Number three is winning hearts and minds, building a counterculture, altering trajectory through influence. Number four is building this parallel structure. And then number five it's related to all of the above, really, but it's about how do we use technology to be part of the problem uh, rather than rather than be part of the problem? How can we use technology to be part of the solution? Um, how do we use technological advances and the digital revolution to advance our freedoms? How can we use it to communicate with wider people? How can we reach hearts and minds? And with the advances in decentralized technologies such as web browsers like Brave, which is what I use, video platforms like Odyssey, where we also broadcast email services like ProtonMail, in addition to all the new blockchain-based developments like encryption tools to safeguard our privacy, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin that could disrupt the financial system and enable us to transact free from state intervention. You know, I'm all for preserving cash, but there are digital alternatives that enable us to also uh, transact privately. Uh, and many of these different, different technologies offer a potential ways at least to circumnavigate state intervention at least in the short term, because I'm very practical. I understand I'm not an idealist. <laughs> Anything that threatens the current reality is going to face a wrath of regulation at some point. You know, the state, uh, the globalist machine isn't just going to willingly, you know, unless we somehow tap the, you know, the water supply with psychedelics. <laughs> I just, one of my friends said, actually, the best thing we could have done at the G7 summit is to do exactly that. <laughs> You know, get everyone high, get everyone uh, experience of the psychedelic uh, connection to something beyond themselves. Um, but I just uh, the reality is here, you know, we know that the, the, the technology offers a breakthrough when it comes to decentralization. Uh, and I'm all for any innovation that makes it harder for the state to govern. Um, this is something to be celebrated and encouraged and, and embraced, um, uh, even where perhaps, you know, the fear of the unknown emerges, which is very common as I've been having conversations with people around digital assets, crypto, you know, we've got an amazing course on that uh, in our network, the Navigating Digital Assets course, which is actually breaking all this down for people so they can understand it because technology, when we hear about all these new decentralized tech, you know, the barriers to entry, understanding it, you know, we can break all that down. But, but, but ultimately we still got to guard against false hope because the same technology which facilitates Privacy and these these gains in freedom will likely be exploited eventually by the state spying apparatus, uh, and you know regulation at some degree is obviously inevitable at some time. You know, this idea that we can trade freely, free from taxation and state intervention, it's a, it's 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 a temporary dream, I'm afraid uh, to say, or most likely to say, unless we find a new way to. Uh, fundamentally alter the role and activities of the state. You could say that innovation offers the possibility. Decentralized technology could potentially disrupt the nature of the state, the government, eventually. And there's already, and we've spoken to people on the on the podcast, the pandemic podcast, about different ways that we can embrace um, technology to, to restore democracy. 
you know, it's interesting to look at how this disruption, these innovative approaches could actually change the nature of the state fundamentally, uh, which would ultimately serve to solve the deeper problems that I've talked about. But again, it's not an overnight success. We've got to think about, we've got to think about how these things implement and, uh, you know, how, how things how things get implemented is the big key because uh, for those of you who have listened to Joe Rogan's episode of Jordan Peterson, a fascinating episode. He's planning an event here in the United Kingdom later in October. Uh, but he's very aware, like like myself, about, you know, the, the, the problems of potentially creating the same problems in reverse that we're standing against, you know. Already people in the new media space are starting to, you know, centralize and, and you know, co- collaboration results in these, these mergers and acquisitions that become larger and larger entities, which on the surface gives you greater strength to go up against the existing reality. But how long does it take before that becomes the next centralized problem that we're fighting against? You know, it's really fascinating to see how things go in cycles. So we have to have this new level of consciousness to be aware of the patterns as they emerge. You know, if you think about entrepreneurs, you know, creatives, you know, the the, the very same uh, seed that gives the, the very same gift that gives them the ability to, to create uh, innovative and creative solutions to problems is also the same side of the coin. It's, it's, it's one side of the coin that, that can result in that more sociopath <laughs> mentality. It's, you know, you, there's studies on this. It's been examined psychologically. We've got to be standing guard at the door of our mind and really constantly working on ourselves to evolve our own consciousness, which, you know, when I come to the conclusion, that's to me is is really the ultimate key to, to to actually transforming society, not only to create a free society, but a more evolved society, a more elevated society going forward. But I'm not going to get into that today. Um, I've talked about decentralization, radical decentralization. If you look at the five strategies I've shared with you so far in this conversation, I'm going to come into the kind of summary now. Decentralization is really the linchpin that connects each of these tactical approaches that I've shared. And again, to recap, I've talked about the political option, activism. I've talked about the tactical withdrawal. I've talked about winning hearts and minds and shifting our culture. I've talked about building a parallel set of structures. I've talked about innovation and technology and decentralization. Decentralization is the piece, you know, because what we're really up against right now is this overt centralization of power, control and influence. And it's, you know, it's playing out through entities like the WEF, the UN, you know, the, the, the co-opt uh, lockstep approaches we've seen with, with governments, you know, this, this public-private partnerships where corporations are synonymous with the state and have more power than the state. You know, this is really the amassed, uh, the, the amassment of power, this centralized power, which is really, really the key that we need to tackle and decentralization is the one principle and the one and only principle that we ought to apply when considering any strategy. It's that radical decentralization of state power and the not just the state power, the deep state power. And, you know, the word deep state for some triggers, you know, I know, you know, it's, it's seen as a conspiracy, but the deep state is simply this. It's the influence of corporate power. It's the influence of the high net worth individuals and the elite that they have over governments. And if you haven't taken the time to speak to witness just how much power these unelected bodies have over governments. Where have you been? <laughs> Come on. This is fundamental to understanding the nature of our world right now, and it's no conspiracy. So radical decentralization of these centralized powers is got to be the relentless focus to restore a proper and limited function of the government and ultimately a foundation of a free society, a democratic, free and peaceful and prosperous society. 
because the 20th century and the early stages of the 21st century, we've witnessed this unprecedented centralization of political and economic power in the hands of a globalist economic political class, the, the hands of the few. We see it at the state level. We see it within the EU. We see it with the UN. And of course, organizations like the World Economic Forum and others are central to this centralized evolution. This has been a slow boiling uh, process, as I've said many times in this broadcast. But if the critical functions of our society remain under the influence and power of a centralized monopoly, then no progress towards liberty and freedom will be possible. So our overriding goal within these tactics or strategies must be the reversal of this trend. We need a bottom-up, grassroots, localized strategy to create the counterbalance to the relentless centralization that we've seen in the last few decades. And what's crazy, and I always look to history, people who talk about the Rome, the collapse of the Roman Empire say that during that time when Rome fell, people forgot what it meant to be a human being. They lost their way. Has the Western world fallen so far that we've forgotten what it means to live in a free society. We've forgotten what it means and how it feels to be free. Have we lost sight of what it means to be pro-humanity in favor of the, the evolution of humankind and the enrichment of our world? Or is this breakdown, this collapse in our Western values, the first sign of a breakthrough? Is this breakdown the first sign of a breakthrough where a radically decentralized grassroots revolution begins to emerge? Is the pushback that we're seeing all around the world against the political elites, against the centralized bodies like the WEF, a symbol of the beginnings of a worldwide freedom movement towards political decentralization, towards localization? Is it the sign that we're beginning to reclaim our power individually and collectively to determine, self-determine our own destiny, our own reality, to move towards that free society? I believe we're seeing the beginnings. I think the cause is already set in motion. And maybe some of these strategies that I've shared with you today could help us to develop a free, open, peaceful and prosperous society as we move forward. Sure, it's not going to happen overnight, even with the power of technology. I'd love to just be able to broadcast this video, hit go live, and every one of you shares it and millions of people reach it in the next hour. We can give it a go. We can give it a go. If you're watching this and you resonate with what I'm saying, you're saying, yes, yes, yes. All of these things. We need to do all of these things. If you're thinking that, then just hit the share button. Let's give it a go. <laughs> Ain't going to change overnight. We might spark some more people to think about what we can do because it's easy to get caught up in the problem and the, the stress and the strife of what's really happening in the world around us. But we've got to start thinking about solutions, which is where I started this conversation today. We all start to understand the problems. We can see at the surface level. Some of us are looking at the depths as well. And we're starting to understand what's led to this culturally, economically, politically. You know, what's the mechanisms that's led to where we are today so that we can start to think about how we move forward tomorrow or how we move forward today? What is the solution? How do we restore freedom as a value within society? How do we create this pro-humanity way of living once again within our Western culture? How do we live more freely? These are the kind of questions we need to start to ask. So I talked tonight about the political op option, activism, tactical withdrawal, number two, winning hearts and minds, number three, building this counterculture movement, number four, starting to explore how we build parallel structures of parallel polis, how number five, how we use innovation technology to be part of the solution, this digital revolution to advance our freedoms, 
And then ultimately, I concluded by sharing that we need this radical decentralization of power. We need to put the power back in the hands of the people on a localized level. And that begins with each one of us claiming our own personal power. You know, it's easy to get a sense of powerlessness when we see the enormity of the challenge we're facing. But many of these strategies, I believe, can help to advance a free, peaceful, prosperous society. And each one of us plays a role, this idea of hearts and minds. If each one of us becomes a beacon for liberty in how we live our lives, you know, and how we share the message with others, we can start to make a change. We can really start to make a change. So if you'd like to explore this conversation further, as I said at the very start of this broadcast, if you missed it, I said that tomorrow evening, Wednesday, the 8th of February, within the Elevate community, uh, which is an extension of what we do here on the podcast, we're going to be continuing the conversation. We're going to break down these four or five strategies as a community discussion. We're going to look at all four. We're going to get out and break out groups. We're going to start to explore how we can put some of these things into practice. We're going to put them into action. What can be done? What's already happening? If you'd like to be part of that discussion, it's happening tomorrow night, 8 p.m. UK time for two hours um, within the Elevate community. It's taking place on Zoom. If you want to register for that event, you can go to weareelevate.org forward slash free societies. If you're already a part of the Elevate community, you've already put part of our online social platform. Just look for the event inside the system. You can register. You can RSVP. Uh, but if you're not part of the Elevate community, you can either go and become part of the Elevate community by going to weareelevate.org. Or if you just want to register for tomorrow's event, you can do so free of charge. We invite you to make a contribution, a donation to help us uh, to do more work like this, more events like this to support what we're doing. Uh, but you can if you want to come free of charge, you can do that. Uh, we, we do it. We do encourage you to make a contribution. But you can go to weareelevate.org forward slash free societies and join us tomorrow night. It will be recorded, so if you can't make it live, don't worry. But if you can make it live, you can be part of the conversation. You can join the breakout groups. You can join the discussion. You can share your ideas. You can listen, participate, and enjoy the session live as we host it tomorrow evening. So again, one thing you can do right now to help us move towards a free society, hit share. Share this in your favorite Telegram groups, Share it on social media, share it on Twitter, share it wherever you're uh, active online, uh, you know, ping it by email to your, your, your neighbors, you know, whatever you do, help share this message. Because, you know, for many people right now, they're starting to think that 2023 is the year that we move beyond the problem and the pain and into something more positive, something more optimistic, something more practical that can start to move us into the solution phase that we're all deeply yearning for so that we can start to live in accordance with this sense of freedom that has emerged within all of us over the last couple of years. So hit the share button, join us tomorrow night, come and see us inside the Elevate community, weareelevate.org. To register the event, go to weareelevate.org forward slash free societies. We'll put the link in the comments, in the description. So wherever you're watching or listening to this, we're available on Spotify, Apple, if you want to listen back. Uh, wherever you're wherever you're tuning into this, you'll find the link. Join us live uh, Wednesday, 8th of February, 8 p.m. UK time. Come and join us to explore how we can build a free society. My name is Dan Aston Gregory. This is the Elevate podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and I'll see you again very soon. Big love.